Hey everybody, my name's Nick. This flower and I are gonna have a problem. If you're new, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. If you felt awkward during worship, it probably means that you're an adult. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, or that you just don't go to aerobics classes regularly, where that's perfectly natural. So um, this, this week we're starting a series that's gonna be about 10 weeks long called Heavenly Minded, Earthly Good. Um, on the book of Colossians. And it's based on the, this premise, which is gr- widely disbelieved in our day, that um, in order to be of earthly good, one must be more heavenly-minded. That the axiom, he or she is so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good, is either a misconception or it points out a person who actually only thinks that they're heavenly-minded in the way Jesus talked about it. The verses I want to focus on this morning are in um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. And it goes like this. I want—well, Frank just read them. I want to focus on verse 5, where Paul says this. He says that—in the verse before, he says, You have faith—your faith and your love are very evident. And then he says this. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. That's the—that's the focus I want to talk about this morning— so I want, to do, I want to do a couple of things. First, I want to talk about this whole question of heavenly-mindedness and earthly goodness and the relatedness and what people tend to think and that sort of thing. Secondly, I want to give you a quick tour of Colossians in relationship specifically to this question, not to tour the whole book because there's a whole lot more going on, going on than we'll ever get to. And then lastly, I want to show you the structure of this and how this first claims heavenly-mindedness produces earthly goodness. Is that fair? And we'll do that in just under two hours. It'll be great. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Sorry. The book of Colossians essentially claims that heavenly-mindedness creates earthly goodness. Heavenly-mindedness, real heavenly-mindedness, defines earthly goodness. And real heavenly-mindedness motivates earthly goodness. That the more heavenly-minded a person is in the way Jesus teaches it, the more earthly good a person will be. Now, the statement, he or she is so heavenly-minded that she's no earthly good, is not a truism. It is not obviously true. It's a confusing metaphor. It's, it's no more true to say that a person who's heavenly-minded has their head in the clouds as it is true to assume that somebody who is materialistic or merely earthly-minded has their head in the sand. It's just demagoguing on a metaphor. The question is, One way to think about this would be this. If that statement were true, you could answer this question. Would the world be a better place if every person who is really a Christian and every church that is really a church were removed from the world? If you just took what Jesus Christ called the church, all who believed in them individually in aggregate together, if you just took those people, you just took them out of the world, would the world be a better place or would the world be a worse place? Should be a pretty stark, straightforward question that should give you a fairly quick, immediate, intuitive answer in your gut. See, for some people, the answer is going to be like, are you kidding me? The world would be so much better. And then there's other people who would go, are you kidding me? The world would fall apart. Right? We live in a city with a, with a fairly strong anti-religious bias, or you might call pro-secular bias. And you see, 
if you think in those terms, one of the biggest problems in the world is itself religious faith. The biggest superstition built into religious faith and the the reason why people cling to it is because it teaches people there's a heaven. If the religion didn't have the heaven, it would just be the rules, right? And who would cling to that? It's really this idea of the fairy god in the sky, that whole bit that keeps people in this whole religious thing. And if you could get rid of that heavenly mindedness part of it, people would let go of the religion and we could all move forward and we could surround ourselves and direct ourselves with technology and philosophy and science and all those kinds of things. And the world would be so much better. So the secular question, of course, is how can we get people to be less heavenly minded so that they can be more earthly good? Turns out that is the opposite of Jesus' view of the world. The just dead straight opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 13. He said, you, meaning you who are believers and followers of me. He's speaking to the church. To believers, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown away and trampled by men. The very next verse is where he says, you are the light of the world. Right? His claim is, when he speaks to believing people, people who believe in and follow him, he says, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, which means that he believes that the church or people who believe in him are a preserving presence in the world, that is, a presence that restrains evil, and secondly, that it is the true progressive presence, meaning pointing the right way forward. Now you might be like, is that what that means? It is what that means. People often get confused about what, the, what salt refers to there. James Emery White, who's a pastor, says it this way. In Jesus' day, salt was one of the most useful and important elements you could possess, but not for adding flavor to food. The main use of salt was a preservative to keep food from spoiling. Without refrigerators or freezers, canned goods or packing, salt was used to keep food from spoiling. So if you had a piece of meat and you couldn't eat it right away, you'd rub salt, you would take some salt and rub it into the meat, which would prevent the meat from going bad. John Stott finishes the thought this way. He says, Jesus' notion is not that the world is tasteless when he says, you're the salt of the world, and that Christians make it less flavorless, but that it is putrefying. The world cannot stop itself from going bad. Only salt introduced from out the outside can do this. The church is set into the world as salt to arrest or at least to hinder the process of social decay. God intends the most powerful of all restraints within sinful society to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. I think that is the right interpretation of Matthew 5.13. Those two views could not be more at odds with each other. <clears throat> now, there's, I think there's two reasons why there is this big divide. And that is that there's a disagreement and there's a misunderstanding. The disagreement is what actually counts as an earthly good. If you, if you say he or she is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, that assumes we all agree on what counts as an earthly good. But if you sit down and you take a heavenly-minded person and a materialistically-minded person, you sit down and you talk about the basis for ethics and what counts and what does not count as an earthly good, do you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a barge load of disagreement is what you're going to find. We're not even talking about the same thing. And so when we say that, we assume we all agree on it, and it's the religious people that don't know what they're doing. But it, we just don't even—and here's the problem. We don't want to have a conversation about essential ethics for two reasons. 
to quote the non-religious atheist Bertrand Russell, that would take thought, and most people would rather die than think. In fact, most do. Right? Our laziness prevents us, and our lack of internal personal ethics, which would cause us to realize we have to think more deeply about what the good is. It's not just a lack of effort in wanting to think. It's a lack of being interested enough in what is good and not good that we would take the time and the effort and seek out the wisdom to know what is good and not good. And we don't want to do that. And that's not just a failure of effort. It is a failure of, of goodness. It's a demonstration of the biblical doctrine of depravity. But the second is, it's, it's like stripping ourselves naked. I mean— if you say, okay, listen, I just want to know what the good is, and then I will adjust my life to fit it. What is the, the true good? That's terrifying. I mean, think how disruptive that could be. If you're even wrong a little bit in what you've been assuming your whole life up until this point is the real good, and then you go and you say, what is the—let's have this discussion. Let's drill down to this thing. Let's really figure out what the good—what is the good, the true, and the beautiful in life coming out of human beings— and you find out that it's even a little different than you've been assuming, think how disruptive that would be to your life. And think how demoralizing it would be because you haven't been doing that. You would have to admit that an enormous amount of your life up until this point, you've been doing the wrong thing. And you would have to change going into the future. And people don't want that. And so we just platitudize the thing and say, oh, that person— It's a little like doing this. It's, it's winning the argument by not defining the question, right? So it's a little bit like saying, who's the best basketball player in the NBA? And then you say some guy nobody's ever heard of. And you're like, that's not the best player. He's the is. Well, in what sense? Well, because for me, the best player in the NBA is the person who gives the funniest post-game interview. And Bill Robinson gives—everybody knows gives the funniest post-game interviews, right? And you're kind of like, on what scale is that, right? And so somebody else may have been thinking the person who best elevates their team to a championship level through their play. If you can't even agree on—and and so many of us are walking around, and we won't even have a conversation, right? Because religion and politics are off-limits. Well, religion and Madison— Right? That should have been funny unless you're taking yourself too seriously. Come on. And so in the context we're in, you can't talk about politics until you've already talked about religion. Religion is based on the philosophy of what is, what's really there. It's, it's the metaphysics and the philosophy and the epistemology. It's the, it's what comes before the policies we're going to support and the people we're going to back. You can't even think through politics until you have a convictional belief about what's, what's real. But yet nobody wants to backtrack, right? The misunderstanding is this, and this is what we're going to talk more about today is there's a, mis a very strong misunderstanding of what the Christian faith, as defined by Jesus and the Bible, means by heavenly-mindedness. Because what some Christians act out and what some Christians teach 
and what some people focus on in terms of heavenly-mindedness is not what the Bible teaches or what Jesus taught heavenly-mindedness is. And when we misdefine it and we misact it out, people get the wrong idea of what we mean by heavenly-mindedness, and it doesn't make sense to them that it would increase our earthly goodness. Does that make sense? And so one of the things that we're going to— um, come back to again and again in this is not just what is earthly goodness. The second half of the book of the Colossians will talk more about that. In the first half, it's going to talk about what does it mean to be heavenly minded? What does that even mean? You see, because Jesus' biggest concern was not that we would be too heavenly minded. His concern was we wouldn't be heavenly minded enough. John Piper has this great quote, I can't, in one of his blogs, he's like, he's like, you just, he's like, you've got to be kidding me that people think that people are, you just show me somebody who is more heavenly-minded, that is, more concerned about the affairs of heaven and heaven's king than they are about their vacation, or about the food they're going to go out and eat, or about the budget they're going to spend on this, or about the clothes that they wear, about the person that's attracted to them, or about who likes them, or who's up and who's down, how their sports teams are. You just show—find me a human that is no kidding more enraptured with the affairs of heaven than those things, and I will show you something incredibly rare. Our problem is not that we've got too many human critters running around thinking too much about heaven. What Jesus was concerned about was whether or not we would be concerned about heaven. His concern is that we would claim to be children of heaven and sons and daughters of God, and we would act like everyone else. Or everyone else plus some self-righteousness when we pretend we don't act like everybody else. And so he said, here's my concern. My concern is that you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of the world, And my concern is that if you don't act like salt, and you aren't salt, your purpose will disappear. And this thing that I've created, Jesus would say, called the church, wouldn't have any purpose. And honestly, at that point, it it would be as worthless as the village atheist says it is. To be thrown under people's feet and to be trampled on by men. Jesus said himself 2,000 years before any Madison atheist said it that if we are not heavenly minded in the way he says we should be, then what we believe is worthless and a fairy tale because it's not what he's talking about and it's not what he promised. And therefore, Jesus' primary concern was vigilance. If you go through the whole Bible, you know you're going to find one of the hugest themes is about what it means to live out faith day to day and follow God day to day and to believe in Jesus day to day. What you're going to find is it's vigilance. It's that when that bad turn comes and with something that you're, you're always watching. Right? Okay. I don't know why that was work. When we look at the book of Colossians, here's what we're going to find. I'll try to come back to this every week. In the book of Colossians and in the Bible, heavenly-mindedness is Christ-mindedness. Heavenly-mindedness is Christ-mindedness. It's not being enraptured with a mental picture of heaven. Right? When, when Jesus said, 
Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nobody turned around from there and said, these streets aren't gold. That wasn't the point, right? The, the point was that God's moral will, his spiritual will, his rule, the way he would run things in justice and in peace, what the Old Testament called shalom, inherent interwoven goodness and right rule would exist. That's what he was talking about. That is, to be heavenly minded is to be mindful of the king of heaven and his will. Can anybody think, this is participatory for 25 seconds, <clears throat> can anybody think of anywhere in the Bible where there is a discourse about what heaven will be like that's more than 14 words? And is there to tell you, the purpose of it is to tell you what heaven is going to be like. It's not there to explain something else. There's a couple possibilities that are like 31 words. But those are there to explain something else. <clears throat> the fact is, is there is no substantive exposition of what heaven is going to be like. That's why we like books about heaven. That's why Christians like Sunday school classes about heaven. Because here's what it takes. It takes somebody who knows their Bible really well, scouring the whole Bible, pulling all the tiny bits and pieces together, and putting it together into a systematic theme so that they can say, here's what heaven's going to be like, which usually amounts to, like, um, lions not eating babies and streets of high precious metals. And Jesus is there. And somehow he's lighting the whole place even though it's a city of a thousand miles cubically and apparently it goes through walls. There just isn't that much in the Bible about that. And here's why. Because that's not what heavenly mindedness is. If, if heavenly mindedness was you knowing how big your mansion was going to be and knowing how much heaven money you were going to have and picking the right stocks in heaven and all of that and what are we going to eat and how's it going to put and what are we going to do and am I going to have a pet donkey? Like... That's not what's supposed to motivate us. The idea is, is that heaven is a place in which Jesus Christ, the King, rules and reigns. He's totally in charge. It's just like him. All of heaven, from the furthest border to the ends, the very end, all the way to the middle, all the way up and all the way down, is like Jesus. And to be heavenly minded is to be be becoming the kind of person who will want to be there. And therefore, being heavenly minded is becoming increasingly Christ minded. That's what it means. And it's right there in Colossians, so let's take a quick tour. That's the funniest picture in Google when you type, let's take a tour. Hold on, let me go back for a second. So, um, Colossians is a letter that gets its name from being written to the city of Colossae, which is a city in modern-day Turkey, about 120 miles due east of the city of Ephesus on the coast. It was a relatively sleepy town that had gotten passed by. In, in fact, it's kind of like the movie Cars, 
Have you seen the, the first movie Cars? Where like they were on Route 66 and then they put in the interstate and then it became this like sleepy town nobody came because everybody drove on the interstate, right? Colossae was a little like that. They moved, it, the Roman road used to go through them and then they moved it because everybody wanted to go to Laodicea and then they became this kind of like sleepy town that like raised sheep. But they were in this really pretty river valley of the Lycos River and there were three towns, Laodicea, which is mentioned at the end of this epistle and in the book of Revelation, Heriopolis and Colossae. There were three towns in that valley. And they were, they were basically podunk towns in the middle of nowhere. But they were 120 miles on the eastern Roman road from the second largest city in the entire Roman Empire, Ephesus. And so they got a little bit of cosmopolitanness running through there without actually being that city. Now Epaphras or Epaphras, the guy um, mentioned in the first verses, is the guy who apparently planted churches in these three towns. Paul had never been there. So this guy, Paul had spent about two years teaching and training people in the city of Ephesus. And it, said, it says in the book of Acts that through that ministry, all of Asia, meaning Turkey, heard the gospel. So what that means is Paul taught these people the gospel, the truth about Jesus, and then they went out and told people. And apparently Epaphras is the guy that caught on there. It seems like he was from there, and he plants these three churches. And so Paul, who is in prison at this point, and it sounds from the, from, like from this epistle that Epaphras has been thrown in prison too. Paul writes a letter to them, and he goes, look, listen guys, I know you, you see me, I've been thrown in prison, and your, your pastor has been thrown in prison. I'm going to send you this guy you've never heard of to shepherd you spiritually, so I'm going to write you this letter and a letter to Laodicea too to help, like, help you guys through this. The letter to Laodicea has been lost, the letter to Colossians we have. Now, as you work through this book, almost all of Paul's letters break down into two sections. One is theology, like what's true, and the second is the application of that theology. How would we then live if this is true? Chapters 1, in, one to about 3 verse 4 is what's true, and the following is so what, right? But the biggest emphasis is heavenly mindedness. So one, in that first verse, the hope, faith and love that springs from the hope that is kept for you in heaven, Right? Then it goes on, and there's these two big sections. One is about Jesus, verses 124 and following, and then there's this whole section on the gospel, what Jesus has done from the end of chapter 1 till 2, about 14. And then there's this negation, like, if this is true, you don't have to do these things. Don't let people control you. And then he goes into a full run of ethics. One of the things that comes out in the place where he talks about Jesus— is, you see, to Jesus, there is no division between heaven and earth. In this sense, he came to redeem earth and its people so that there could be a union between heaven and earth, that those two things could be reconciled together. You see, so for Jesus, the idea of throw away the earth and I'm going to jump to heaven, so I don't care what happens here, that doesn't compute, right? So if you look at, look at these verses— in verse 16, it says this, that when everything was created, both things in heaven and on earth, they were all created by Jesus, they all belong to Jesus, and they all consist in Jesus. That is, th to Jesus, in his creation, there's no— he, he created the heavens, he created the earth, they both belong to him, he wants them both, and he's going to have them both. And then later when it talks about his death and resurrection, for us, it says, and this is what— Jesus did when he died and rose from the dead and, and, and drew us to himself. It says, 
For God was pleased, that is God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see the, see the idea there? The idea that like heaven and earth are these totally unrelated things, and we're going to be raptured or something out of this earth and put into heaven. This earth is all going to burn and be gone. And we don't have to think about this anymore. And we're going to be in heaven. There's a certain amount of truth to that because the Bible does teach that the earth will be recreated and rejuvenated in a way that we don't really understand. But at the same time, in the end of Revelation, it says that the city of God comes down out of heaven to a newly recreated earth. And the angel shouts out this really happy thing, apparently. Now the dwelling place of with God is, will be with humans in a recreated eternal world, which I have no idea what that's going to be like. But what we do here in Revelation is that there is a new heavens and a new earth, and they're one. Does that make sense? Because to Jesus, the will of heaven is to redeem the earth. Does that make sense? So when he, we talk about being heavenly-minded, do you see how that would make us earthly-minded? If being heavenly-minded is to have in mind the things of the king of heaven, is to be Christ-minded, what is it to be Christ-minded? It's to be redemptively-minded towards his creation. We're not—we don't have a redemptive job in heaven. Jesus did not ascend into heaven and say, I want you guys to redeem heaven. Go out and make disciples of all angels. He didn't do that. He sent us into the world to make disciples of all nations, to be salt in the earth, to be light among all peoples. That's what he gave us to do. That is the will of heaven, the redemption and the good of all people in the earth. Now, I might be getting a little ahead of myself here. So at the end of the section, when Paul talks all about what it means to follow Jesus and the gospel, to be heavenly-minded is to be Christ-minded. It, this section, it, that section ends with this. And these verses are the very heart of the book of Colossians. If you want to know what the whole book of Colossians is about, I would say look to these verses. And if you want to memorize any verses out of the book of Colossians, I would nominate these verses. It says this. Since then, he's already talked about these things. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above— where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see how there's no mention of anything in heaven other than Christ there? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now you might say, no, wait a second. It says there, Nick, explicitly, don't set your mind on earthly things. Yes, but when you read the next verses, what he's referring to as earthly things are things specifically related to the brokenness of the created order, which are sins. And he, and he lists them, like lusts and passions and greed and abusing each other and so on. When he says earthly things, that's what he means. He means the unredeemed state of the way things are on earth. He's saying, don't set your mind on the way the world works. You set your mind on the way Jesus works. That's the distinction. You have to follow the language. You can't just use it for whatever you want, right? 
And so in the next verse is the agenda of Colossians this, and this is where I want to make a very quick argument about earthly good. After these verses where he says, we're so thankful for you guys, he says, now here's what I'm going to do, right? He says, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to— no, why doesn't he do it? Because he's in jail, okay? So he's in jail, and so he—only God could do this for them. So he's praying that when he sends Tychicus to them and he sends them these letters, he just entrusts them to God because he and Epaphras are in prison, right? He says, so we've been praying this for you. So what's, what's he praying for? That God would— fill you with the knowledge of his will, not mental images of heaven, but the will of the king of heaven, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What's his outcome, the purpose he's after? And we pray this in order that, notice that, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord or the king of heaven and may please him in every way. Now, what does that entail? Does it entail retraction from practical living? He says, no, he says, here's what, it, here's what it would amount to. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the kingdom of life. Which is, essentially, he says this. If you are completely heavenly-minded, this, this is what it would produce. It would produce a life full of good works of all kinds. It would be a good and beautiful life that dramatically impacts the good of others. Two, that it would be full of the knowledge of God. That is, you would have the courage and the ability to see the world the way God sees it and respond to it the way Jesus would. Third, he says that you would be so internally strengthened in character that you would have the capacity for great endurance and great patience. That is, no matter what was done to you, you could endure it. And no matter how mean the person doing it to you, you could have patience with them. That is, you would have astoundingly profound internal resources that are unheard of. And fourth, you would be happy reliably and predictably happy because your joy would be rooted in being thankful toward God and nobody can take that from you. Now, listen, I think you've got to have a pretty screwed up idea of what earthly goodness is to not at least admit on some level a person marked by those things would be an amazing asset to the world if they weren't self-righteous and religiously idiotic. That that would be in an, any person at all like that and growing in that would be a great earthly good. So what do these, these verses say then? Verses 3 to 8. The point in these three verses is this. That hope, hope is the spring of deep love and deep courage. Hope is. That your capacity, because he says the faith and the love, right? What does he mean by faith in this context? A guy who's been thrown in prison and says this about what his heavenly mindedness has got him. In verse 24 in chapter 1, he says, I fill up in my flesh, that is, I devour, I take to myself, I want it. What does he want? He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, meaning I'm constantly, inevitably, and purposefully suffering out of joy. To be like Christ, 
right? Where, where, why, why does he do that? Because he has faith. He has the courage to see the world the way Jesus sees it and not how it appears to him. People talk about faith as the opposite of reason. That is not the way the Bible talks about it. That's pulling a word out of the Bible, defining it however you want to so you can throw rocks at it and pretending it's what you say it is. Faith in the Bible is not the opposite of reason. Faith is the courage to see the world the way Jesus sees it rather than the way your personal, selfish, and sinful intuitions tell you it must be and therefore you must respond to. It is a transformation that you look at the world convictionally rather than passively. And it is the ability to see it the way Jesus sees it and to respond to everything the way Jesus would rather than the way you would naturally react out of your own selfishness, out of your own greed, out of your own self-preservation, out of your own whatever. That's what faith is. It's courage to see the whole world and everything that happens in it in a certain way. And love, that is, the courage to treat everybody the way Jesus would treat them and to want to do it, right? The word love doesn't really quite work unless it like, there's something emotional in you that you want to do it. Love, as it's spoken of there, is the capacity and the desire to treat every single person you come across the way Jesus would treat them. And what Paul is arguing through prepositions and sentence structure is that those two things— and the potency, the quality, and the quantity that you need them spring from hope. Which is why irreligious people can do these things. The content and quality of their hope is something else. They're hoping in something. Everybody hopes in something. And whatever you put in there is going to predetermine the quality and the quantity of your hope, which will determine how much motivation, how reliable the spring of water that is your capacity to be courageous in faith and in love will be. And Paul's argument is the one you are meant to have, the one with the highest quality and quantity, the most powerful one that there is, the one that can get you through anything and everything is Jesus. That he has died for you, that if you trust in him, he is presently, mystically united with you and with you and providing for you. And in the future, you will be in and with him in glory, made like him and in mystical permanent union with him. Whatever else heaven is like, it's that. In chapter 2, Paul says, the mystery is this. To be glorified with Christ. That's all he says about it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, so here's what this means. This is like the last slide, so stick with me here for just a minute. It's going to take me a little while to explain it, though. We need this, and we need that. The spring of it is this, is hope. Notice that the verse does not say the hope that is heaven. It doesn't say that. The hope that gives us faith and love, that supplies it, directs it, defines it, and motivates it, is not heaven. It doesn't say, it's, it's, it springs from the hope that is heaven that you'll get someday. It says, the hope that is in heaven kept for you, which is Christ, who is your life, the hope of glory. Right? And he says, that comes from something. It comes from, one, 
your hope is going to have a certain quality to it. Everybody has a hope. But one of the first questions is, is it true? You see, the atheist objection to Christian hope would be this. Listen, it was great if it motivates you. It's great if that works for you. It's false. You see, it matters. Listen, if you want to be like a mystic sentimentalist, that's fine. You can be that. There's no law against that. I love you. But if I'm going to do what Paul says in verse 24, fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, that is, I am going to gladly devour the sufferings of this earth into my life, other people's problems, all of my duties and roles, everything that's difficult for me to deliver on out of character that I know is truly morally good, right, and beautiful. Listen, (laughs) I need hope that is a powerful stripping, and I need to believe that it's true. I don't need to convince myself it's true. It needs to be true. And I realize that there's an epistemological problem with that. How can we really know everything? We might all be brains and bats. Listen, I get it. There is an evidential question here. Is it Does it make sense to believe Jesus was real, who he said he was, and died and rose from the dead? And if you want to be here for two more hours, we can do that. Any hands? Okay. Two is not going to be enough. That's just a topic for another day. But the claim in these verses is this. Paul explicitly says, the gospel, which is the word of truth that you received. That is, there is a message from God that Jesus is who he said he was. He's the son of God. He died for you. That is, he took all of your true moral guilt onto himself and freed you from it, and through faith gives you his righteousness and perfect innocence before God so that you can be completely rightly related to God. You can call your past what it is. You can recognize who you are. It doesn't take away your sense of worth because your worth will be rooted in him and in what he's made you to be. And it can free you to be the person you were meant to be. And it can give you a hope forever in heaven. It's enormously powerful. And what Paul says is, at, at a certain point, you realize that was true. And that that was truer than any other hope you had ever used as a spring for whatever you were trying to do. The message of the gospel is true. And if you're going to hope in something, it better be true. Because here's the thing. If you try to convince yourself something is true, it's going to fail you the minute you need it. Right? There's this huge movement out there of the like self-coaching like you're awesome and what you need I was was actually watching a video this week It's that's part of the like man coaching movement like how to get women interested in you, right? And they're like talking about posture and like being confident and like approaching women like this and whatever, right? And I'm like yeah, so some guy's watching this YouTube video with a woman with perked up boobs, and he's like, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna get a good haircut, put product in my hair, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk with my shoulders back, and I'm gonna walk up to some woman way out of my league, and I'm gonna be like, hey, baby, you know, like, and I'm gonna be super confident, and it's gonna work. It's not gonna work. You know why? Because the, it's gonna work when you're watching YouTube. But when you actually walk up to that woman, you're gonna go like this. Are you already here with someone? Because I could leave. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. Because you're not confident. (laughs) You're not. That's why jerks get all the girls. Because they don't care. Right? So he's like, whatever. You want to come with me? Fine. My motorcycle's outside. Whatever. I don't care. She's like, oh gosh. Because he really could care less. 
right? And that's confidence, and apparently that's attractive. Right? Now, that's a crass example. But the, the point is, how, how do you get to the point where somebody's like, I'm going to kill you, and you go, you know what? I fear God more than I fear you. You can throw my body in the dirt. He can throw my body in hell. I just don't care what you think. Or like, you're a Christian. You're so, that's so dumb. Like, so dumb. You believe this fairy God in heaven. You're like, yeah, you're right. Because you are the greatest intellect in the entire universe. I'm so intimidated. Like, Bullcrap. God became a person, died for me. Like, you don't even like me. I don't, I don't care. You see, there's a, there's a certain amount of release that comes when you recognize that the gospel is true. Just, you don't care. You don't care what people think. And guess what happens? You're free to care about them. You don't act based on what, whether or not they'll like you. You don't, doesn't matter to you, doesn't, Right? And you, you're free to, to treat them based on what their needs are. You know? I mean, I was, I was watching that video and I was like, lady, you're just teaching them how to try to approach shallow women. Why would they want that? Like, you're teaching them how to attract ninnies. Like, ugh. I want to, like, I'm downstairs, like, like, doing stuff I'm supposed to. I'm like, I want to make a video to put on YouTube to talk about. Like, I'm just, I'm sorry. It's crazy. Okay, it's not just the quality, though. It's also the quantity of the hope. You see, there's a point where, where Paul says— You see, because I can tell you this. Like, I can say, listen, you're probably going to wake up tomorrow. You're like, Nick, I'm depressed. I'm like, you know what? You're probably going to wake up tomorrow, and tomorrow might not be as bad as today. Now, that's, that's probably true. Right? That's a, that's, so that's a, a, a high-quality hope, but is it a high-quantity hope? Like, is that going to do anything for you? Is that going to get you anywhere? You see, in the, in the verses following, Paul says this. He says that, that he's, ta- he's talking about the gospel, and he says that this is what you believed the day you understood and realized. Let me, let me read the verse to you. It's in verse 6 there. He says, the gospel that has come to you, and he says this, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been among you since the day you heard it, and understood God's grace in all its truth. Now, that's, that's the thing about the Bible. Is there's so many just read-over lines, and we just read over them, and we don't slow down. One of the things that pe- people ask me, they're like, you know, when you went to seminary, you had to study Greek, right? It's like, yeah, we studied both original languages. It was so fun. And they're like, well, that must be so great, because, like, you can read the Bible in, like, its original language. I was like, yeah, it's great, but the translations are so good, I don't even know what to tell you. I was like, here's the, here's the biggest thing it does. It made me read the Bible slow enough that I paid attention to it because I was reading it in a foreign language. You get the same thing from reading the Bible in Spanish, frankly. It just slows you down to pay attention to each word because you're like, what does that word mean? Because it's a different language than you're used to. Understand God's grace in all its truth. Do you hear what that's saying? He's saying there, there wasn't a point where you just received the message of Jesus and you believed it. It was a high-quality hope. There was a point at which it actually dawned on you what the heck it actually means. Like, there was one day where you were like, wait a second. Okay, wait a second. I'm actually this bad. And God— decided what he wanted to do was to 
deny himself of his own glory, become a human being, come among the sinful human beings, tell them the truth, recognizing they were going to hate him for it, humiliatingly strip him naked and execute him in the worst possible way, so that a a relatively small subset of them would trust and follow him, so that we could be made right with him, when in a moment he could have spoken uh, this humanity out of existence and a new one into existence. In a moment. That's what the Greeks, I don't know if you know this, that's what the Greeks believed. The Greeks believed we were the third version of humans. There was the gold version of humans. And the gods wiped them out and made a silver version. And they were bad. So the gods wiped them out and they made a clay version. That's us. That's, that's, that's more freaking believable. Right? Like, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. This, the level of generosity and favor that is in that message that will be worked out for the next two chapters that we'll talk about for the next ten weeks. He said there's a point where the size of it dawns on you. And it's not just the quality of its truth, but it's the size of it that becomes so profoundly astounding that it it just sort of overloads everything. And you start thinking clearer and feeling stronger and acting more decisively and being who you were meant to be, not just because of the quality, but because of the quantity of the truth. That it is the truth of the gospel and the understanding God's grace in all its truth, those come together and they produce a hope, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory forever, that produces a spring, that produces the courage to see the world the way it is, and the courage to treat people the way Jesus would treat them. It will change you dramatically, if and only if you are heavenly minded in this Biblical, Jesus-centered way. To be heavenly-minded is to be Christ-minded. Hope is the spring of real faith and courage and love. And it springs most powerfully because it springs most truthfully and most greatly from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you. Which is a message from the past which changes us dramatically in the future and which does bear a hope kept for us in heaven that springs forth every moment we choose to believe it. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for this book and for the message of Jesus. We pray that you'd give us the courage to believe it really to believe it. I pray for any guests here who aren't used to um, hearing things quite this way. I pray that you would connect them directly to the words of the Bible and help them to see and decide whether or not what I've said is faithful to what it says there and to what it teaches about the Christ who is crucified, dead, and risen for them. And I pray that you'd, you'd move them. You'd speak to them right now. We pray that you'd help us to possess and cherish and live in the fountain that is hope that springs forth and produces faith and love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing.